Massive thank you as always to patrons Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns and Justin Harper. And this week's random call out goes to patron Leah Norman. You can support us too at patreon.com. It's not just in your head or follow us on social media and help spread the word. For those new to the show, my name is Liam and I edit and produce the podcast as well as do some backseat co-hosting. Today, psychotherapist Harriet Fraud talks to Susan Rosenthal. Susan is a Canadian physician and a now-retired trauma-informed psychotherapist. She is the author of Sick and Sicker, Marxism and Psychology and Rebel Minds. Her website is full of articles and it's well worth a visit, susanrosenthal.com. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. What would be great to start this off is what you sent through. I thought it was a great opening statement yes. and we could we could go from there. Could go from there. Sounds good. Okay. If it's not all in our heads, then it's in the world. And what's in the world today, I mean, what, what we're facing today are existential crises, climate change, environmental destruction, the buildup to war, and this pandemic. And all these crises are the result of a profit-driven system that is crushing the life out of people and destroying the foundation for our life on Earth. I mean, take this pandemic. More than 5 million people have died and many more left disabled. Millions of people have lost their jobs and their savings. Relationships are breaking down. Drug-related deaths have reached record highs. The entire chain of global production is disrupted and society is disintegrating. Worst of all, there's no end in sight. Now, this is, none of this is the fault of the virus. The virus didn't cause all this. We've known how to stop viral transmission for over a century. The problem is, is that in our society, nothing can be done unless it generates profit and nothing can be done that disrupts the flow of profit. I mean, to protect profits, public health measures are deployed in a chaotic, haphazard, ineffective manner that at best, only slows viral spread. And to protect profits, industries are allowed to operate in unsanitary conditions, spreading disease to surrounding communities. And there's no profit in making schools safe or long-term care facilities or prisons. Now, instead of acknowledging their systemic failure to stop this pandemic, authorities do what they always do. They gaslight us. They insist they're doing everything possible, which they aren't, and that the problem is individuals are just making bad or irresponsible choices. They blame the Chinese. They blame the unvaccinated. They turn us against each other. And this is the same process by which people labeled mentally ill are stigmatized. That's true. On the, we do have to remember, though, it isn't, on, it isn't necessarily the whole world that's failing. It's the United States with its market-driven healthcare system that places like New Zealand have almost no cases. Of course, they're willing to lock down and forego money. And also they trust their government, the socialist labor government of Jacinda Ardern. Even a country like New Zealand is small. It, it has only about 5 million people. But even a country like China, which has 1,370,000,000 people, has 8,000 dead, whereas we have 800,000, because they're willing to close everything and enforce it. And they are authoritarian. However, they have been wildly courageous and efficient about stopping COVID where it was rampant, where it began and all over their country, where it comes up, they close the place down, they test and treat everyone. And that is what we don't do because there's no money in it. So, uh, you know, I just, I totally endorse what you say. I just want to emphasize that we have the most deaths in the world and we are an unadulterated capitalist system with the only market-driven healthcare system of all the rich countries in the world. Well, that's certainly true, Harriet, and and that's why the U.S. has had a record number, proportional to its population, record number of infections and deaths. 
However, the problem is an international one because it doesn't matter how well a single country or state or province contains the virus when we have a global economy and other nations are not doing that. So inevitably, the the, uh, virus will continue to penetrate even places that are uh, cleared of it over and over and over. And the the fact is that I think when, when you live in a global economy, then you have to have a global response. And that's not possible when the world is based, is organized on a competitive basis. That's true. I mean, you look at the whole supply chain business in the United States. Supply chains are interrupted. Of course they are. Seven out of the 10 most powerful and effective ports in the world are in China. When there's a COVID problem in China, they close it down. Hello? Everything has ramifications. There's a huge labor shortage, particularly of the really lousy jobs at lousy pay and hard work. Well, that's what immigration used to do in the United States. Immigrants, once you stop the flow of immigrants, you also don't have dishwashers. Hello? There is a kind of thinking as if we aren't in, as you say, a global economy and mutually interdependent and therefore have to work together. Yes, yes. And because of that, this pandemic is, it's not possible to stop it in this existing system, just like HIV, AIDS, which continues to be epidemic, and also um, tuberculosis, which continues to be epidemic. So talk about ending a pandemic it, it only, oh, that only means it's no longer affecting well-off white people. Generally, that's what it means. Or so many masses of people that it has to be recognized. The Spanish flu, which was called the Spanish flu by the Americans, even though it started in Kansas, you can imagine why they called it Spanish. But eventually that ebbed, but it was a different country then. America was, and the world was less developed in some ways and antagonistic in others. And I think the importance of the pandemic for our discussion is how it's affecting people's health. Yeah. Right? And particularly young people. It's not just the pandemic. It's like the pandemic has come on top of things that they're already concerned about, like climate change, like the drive to war, like the environmental destruction. And I, um, many young people, I know my grandchildren, my grandsons, believe there is no future for humanity. And I came across this recently, a 10-country survey of 10,000 young people um, mm. asking what they thought about climate change. And 60% felt very or extremely worried. More than half felt sad, anxious, angry, yeah. powerless, helpless, and guilty. And 77% saw the future as frightening. More than half think humanity is doomed. Now, this is, this is a massive amount of suffering among young people who should have everything to look forward to. And instead of seeing this as a legitimate response to a terrifying situation, the, the, um, the, the, are, the young people are being pathologized with DSM labels and we're being told this is a pandemic of mental illness, somehow separate from the conditions that's creating it. And this is more systemic gaslighting. I mean, it's irrational yes. to expect people to quietly submit when their lives and their world are torn apart. And it's irrational to expect young people to simply accept having no future. Absolutely. You know, And increasing numbers of people are being drugged into submission in order to maintain a system that is leading us into extinction. Well, one hopes that world capitalist domination with its fossil fuel demands won't imperil the whole world. But it is interesting that the bubonic plague that happened in the 13th century and killed millions of people happened as feudalism was failing, as people were unhealthy as the old estate system of feudalism was breaking down and there was ill health. And I think capitalism is breaking down and creating and helping to create the conditions. Look at the kind of food people eat in the United States. A huge bag of Cheetos, Fritos, or Doritos that people glom while watching television or playing video games is equal to a half a cup of lentils that some starving child in Nigeria might have. That there's a whole unhealthy and desperate attitude here as people's lives 
are looted and they don't know why because the ideology tells them they're in the seat of freedom and opportunity. That's the gaslighting that you beautifully refer to. But I think people are are beginning to see this. I mean, I just, just this morning, I, I read this article in Teen Vogue with the title, Biden's COVID response is the problem, stop blaming individuals. And this, this young person who's writing uh, for other young people says, let me just find the quote here. She says, we cannot blame 800,000 deaths on selfish individuals. The blame lies with a government that can provide the necessary resources for people to weather the storm, but is choosing not to. You know, and I think that that is speaking to young people who see the incompetence of the um, government response to this pandemic, know what needs to be done, see it isn't being done, and are suffering, and their families are suffering, and people around them are suffering. And I think we're beginning to see um, more rebellion and more rejection of the official story. I think so, too, because people are unionizing that never did before. Chicago fine arts workers are organized, the School of Fine Arts, Chicago Museum workers are organized, the 17,000 um, instructors at University of California schools are now unionized because people are realizing, wait a minute, we're essential. The boss isn't essential. The board of trustees aren't essential. We do the labor. We should share in the proceeds. And we have been cheated. It's an anti-capitalist impulse coursing through labor, even with a weak AFL-CIO, and coursing through the United States, particularly young people, even without a strong socialist movement that might have led it in another time. It's very interesting that people are ahead of official response and also of often political response. I mean, there are impulses. Sarah Nelson, the most radical leader of all of the labor movement, is considering a run to be the head of the AFL-CIO. And she's the only one who called for a general strike when Trump wanted airline workers to work for nothing. So that's a change. Well, there's, it's also just a going on to the third year of great misery uncertainty, uh, deprivation. Everybody I know who has young children is overwhelmed, is barely managing. Um, and, uh, and the vaccine, which, was, which we were told would be, this is going to be the cure, this is the end of it, has turned out to not be the, the solution because it can't be. It's, it's being produced in isolation. Uh, and in fact, in Canada, where I live, more people have died from COVID since the vaccine became, was rolled out last December, wow. December 2020, than before the vaccine was available. Because Were they once vaccinated? The just just overall deaths. Overall deaths are greater. And Canada has a fairly high vaccination rate. It's because all of the non-vaccine interventions were abandoned. Mm -hmm. It was assumed that all you needed was a vaccine, and then you could take off your mask, you could socialize, you could do mm -hmm. whatever. And and now we know that the variants can get through those vaccines. They can override uh, people's immunity. And while people um, are not as sick who've got the vaccine, they can still get quite sick, and they can still die. And I, 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 I don't think that capitalism is dying. I think it's, it's, it's slumbering along. It's doing very well. Apparently, in the last year alone, the wealth of nine of the U.S. top uh, capitalists increased more than $360 billion. I mean, they're doing well. They're doing extremely well. And, and I think that this is, this is the contradiction that we're seeing is that the, the people for whom the system is designed to enrich are being enriched. And, mm -hmm. and everyone else is being impoverished and inequality is increasing dramatically. And this is creating a lot of suffering. And the problem is we live in a society where suffering is individualized, depoliticized, and medicalized so that people think that it's just them. That's hard to sustain when everyone around you is suffering too. So, so suffering is becoming a more of a social um, uh, awareness than something you quietly go to, to your doctor or therapist to talk about, thinking that nobody else is in the same boat as you are. I mean, that's harder and harder to sustain now. 
It is. And when I say capitalism is in trouble, I mean that idea in the United States that we were, we gave opportunity to everyone, that you could make it if you really try. That's being trashed in the light of the lack of democracy of candidates that need to raise billions of dollars if they're going to run for president. And two parties that are both capitalist parties, it's occurring to people, wait a minute, we don't have a voice. And that's why I mean, I think it's failing because the mass of people are no longer so enchanted. I think um, just to sort of borrow a phrase uh, from one of the questions you had, Harriet, uh, in, the, in the emails that we sent back and forth, you had this capitalist-induced disassociation. Mm. And uh, it that, to me, sounds like the bit that is uh, falling away mm. uh, as, as sort of reality has, uh, has, has hit everyone. Mm. Um, I don't know if you if you wanted to have to some degree you have been talking about that but i just wonder in what ways that has manifested either prior to this pandemic or during the pandemic like whilst the world is burning around everyone there's still a push from um states and and from companies to be like no no, no everything's fine keep doing what you're doing like i don't know if you wanted to uh, either of you had any sort of comment about like the as you put you know the gaslighting exists. But I think that there's a polarization going on. I, th- I think that there, that while people are experiencing huge contradictions in what they're told and what they're experiencing, um, it doesn't mean that they know that they agree on why that is happening or what is the way forward. And you think that there's a, there is a polarization where some people are seeing that the problem is the system itself and other people are falling into the scapegoating of the problem is, are, is the unvaccinated. Mm. Uh, they are the ones who are responsible They're the, for the continuation of the pandemic. And they, I know in Quebec and in some other countries, they want to bring in taxes and fines for people who aren't vaccinated to make them responsible uh, and, and I think a lot of people are falling beh- uh, behind that. I've had many, many arguments with people who who have bl- accepted this idea that if only everybody would get vaccinated, this would stop. Mm. And that that's not true. Uh, and not to mention all of the of the systemic barriers to people getting vaccinated. In, in terms of, I know f- for me, uh, it was very hard for me to locate a, a COVID vaccine because they were either sold out or there was mm-hmm. a wait list. Um, the, the, the supplies that the government says are there are not there. We lined up to get rapid test kits. They said that they didn't have them and didn't know when they were going to get them. So you get this at the top of society saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, like you say, everything's fine. We're, it's under control. But our, the reality is people are scrambling to try to meet the conditions that are being put. You have to have a test before you go to school. What if you can't get the test? What if it, that takes too long? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the frustration, but what do you, what, what is the way forward? There, there is a sense that um, it could be the system. What do you do with both that? It's certainly just easy to turn around and blame those irresponsible young people for having parties, you know, the, the irresponsible governors who are against masking, you know, looking at sort of these individual uh, factors rather than looking at as a systemic problem. Which then results in a lot of irresponsible behavior on the part of individuals and political polarization in the United States that means that anything that the government suggests is suspect because starting with Ronald Reagan, there was a big shift away from FDR and the idea that big government is great because it brought you social security, unemployment insurance, and all the and 11 million people employed. It was the government is bad and you have to reduce government, which is part of a right-wing platform to reduce the few taxes they already pay. So whatever the government tells you is suspect. However, people at least on a work basis are understanding it. The people who work at Amazon warehouses with Jeff Bezos are beginning to unionize, even though they are investing millions into suppressing unions, because they see that they're getting hurt and they're getting sick and they're not protected. And if they get COVID at work, they have two weeks of paid vacation and that's it, 
Or in his great generosity, Bezos said you could borrow weeks from other employees. Uh, so that they're realizing it's outrageous and against all odds, organizing so they have more control. But that's not understanding the wider capitalist role. Anyway, I think we have to look at what you very sensibly call the medical psychological professionals who are so focused on looking at personal causes of misery that they don't look at the social causes. And that's, I think, a lot in the United States influenced by big pharma because the big pharmacy companies worked with psychologists originally, and um, this was written up in several places, to make every diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, plug into a medication. That was fought hard when they came up with post-traumatic stress disorder around Vietnam, because that's obviously not a biochemical emergence. It's the war experience. And so that, and there have been demonstrations against the Diagnostic Statistical Manual at each of its um, rewritings. And even the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States put out a directive that said that the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is used in every health uh, industry and mental health in the United States is limited because it doesn't give you any understanding of the etiology. How come people became uh, chemically imbalanced or whatever? What what made it happen? But that's ignored. They don't have the, the, the National Institutes of Mental Health don't have the budget to get that onto everybody's TV set the way the drug companies do. Well, I think if we, if we look at, at the concept of mental illness or the idea that mental suffering is a medical problem, right. that's a very recent historical development. It's unique to capitalism, actually. Yes. I mean, when people say mental illness has always existed, that's really untrue. I mean, suffering has always existed, always will exist to some extent, but to to characterize it as a medical problem in need of treatment is was not on anybody's radar before capitalism. I mean, in early egalitarian societies, they had no concept of mental illness or insanity. Uh, people who experienced extraordinary states of being were treated as valuable members of the community because they were presumed to have a connection with the spirit world. And under feudalism, mental suffering was a religious crisis, uh, maybe possession by a demon or a cursed by a witch. And the remedy was a religious confession or exorcism. So it's only with capitalism that you start to see mental suffering treated as a medical problem. In fact, the term mental illness doesn't even appear until in English until 1724. The term psychosis doesn't appear until 1847. And the term schizophrenia doesn't appear until 1909, right? That's really and the same important. thing is true. The same thing is true for physical for, suffering. We've been around for uh, two hundred thousand years, right? <laughs> plus, plus all the like millions, right. uh, billions of years of evolution to get to this point, and then suddenly it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> there's this Rich. thing we've decided. It's called mental illness, and uh, the solution is much uh, drugs and money. Right. Well, initially it wasn't. It wasn't so so much drugs. It was social control because mm. the the transfer of medicine from the church to the state in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, the state took over the um, uh, the the um, the control, if you will, of mm. of the people who had been labeled uh, insane, uh, and that this was an issue. It, the state viewed madness as a problem of social control. And that's why when it begins to give psychiatrists the legal power to confine people mm. who are disturbed or disturbing, to declare, to be able to declare someone dangerous or possibly dangerous without evidence, or to indefinitely detain someone who's committed no crime and to impose damaging interventions without consent and against people's will. This is, this is, this was done in, in the service of social control, but physicians don't like to think of themselves as social police. So <laughs> they interpreted state, they interpret these state demands as um, 
that they're promoting the concept of madness as a disease requiring treatment, which justifies their role. But now, of course, as you've stated, the role of psychiatry has expanded far beyond the containment of yes. madness. And the modern DSM has become an authority on what is considered acceptable behavior. In other words, it's, it's a means of silencing rebels and imposing social conformity. It's not only behavior. What's an acceptable state of feeling? What's an acceptable emotional state? And it's very interesting to me. I went to Mondragon, which is a city in Spain that consists of 104 different, I think it's 104 different cooperatives. It's all cooperatives. And one of the things I noticed immediately, there's no cops, which is amazing. And also I talked to someone on an assembly line And I said, well, what do you do since you work as a co-op and you work together? This was in a big factory, Frigor, that made refrigerators and dishwashers. And these people were putting parts into dishwashers, at least until the buzzer went off. They don't allow, they didn't allow anyone to do repetitive work for more than two hours. So after two hours, you switch to another job. But I asked a woman there, well, what about if one of you on the line is an addict and he or she doesn't do their share or is having emotional problems and breaking down and doesn't do their share of the work? How do you handle that? She said, well, if for any reason people aren't doing their share, which is rare, we talk to them. And if that doesn't work, they're sent to a rehab, but that's only happened once or twice in our 75 years or so of existence, people talk to that person and we all make the decisions about our job. And so that just isn't the factor here. And I realized it's because in Mondragon, everybody has to participate in the cooperative. And in that particular cooperative, because it was around 2009, the recession of 2008 had hurt their market in Spain where people had second homes on the beach. So they were selling less appliances and they had to meet together and decide, how do we handle this? Do we all take a day off and produce less and therefore take a slight pay cut? Do people get fired? What do we do? And they decided, well, we'll all get a little less and we'll all have a day off. And she said, well, We all did it together. Everybody's a part of it. Nobody feels so alone. Maybe that's why. And the loneliness, when you're not, when you don't decide on the conditions of your work or what you're paid, and you don't decide in an honest way much about your government, the lonely, and you don't have close ties that are respected and honored, and you don't have a political culture of a socialist movement, or you're not active in Black Lives Matter or Me Too or something, so you don't have a sense of connection with people that gives you hope, then people go mad because we are social animals. And the isolation here is terrible. Yes, it's, it's very true. In the vast majority of, of human history, we lived in egalitarian societies because that was what maximized our chances of surviving. Right. And uh, now we're in a position where we are not uh, we're not fit to um, we're not fitting in with our environment, which is the criteria for survival of a species. Uh, we are because we don't live in egalitarian societies. We live in class divided societies uh, where we aren't, as you say, we are, we are not allowed to cooperate and to make decisions about what's in our best interest. And I think this is where, you, you know, we can talk about the role of the professional class, which is a class of, of presumed experts who we are told are better at making decisions than anybody else. And therefore, they should have the exclusive right to tell us what we can and cannot do, uh, cannot and cannot think, feel. Uh, and, and it robs us of, of our agency in being the creative problem solvers that we have evolved to be. Uh, and, and so, of course, people are, are breaking down, are feeling isolated, frustrated, um, that their lives are... are uh, consumed by by repetitive and meaningless activities, uh, and 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 frustration and deprivation, uh, and, and this is this is something that that 
can go either towards a break with capitalism and new social formations that are egalitarian and democratic, or it can and move towards a, a fascist authoritarianism. And it really depends on what we do, which one is going to be. Yeah, I think the professional managerial class are the people who work for the capitalist ownership class in order to justify what they do and facilitate what they do. Because in a class society, you have basically two, well, you have three classes. One is the people who do the work. The other is the people who appropriate the wealth from that work and decide where to allocate it and distribute it. And a third is those people that make it possible, the professionals, the supervisors, the so on, who don't directly do either, but create the cultural conditions and the social conditions that make it possible with from the secretary that writes out the pink slips to the professionals that justify and advertise what people, what the company is doing, which lies about what it's doing and pretends that they do it all for you when they do it all to make money for a small group of people. Yes, well, I, I, I think that the, the medical profession, the psych, psychiatric, psychological profession are part of the professional managerial class. And I've been teaching master's level psych, psychology students for about 27 years. And I, I'm absolutely convinced that everyone with rare exception, everyone who enters the helping professions is motivated by a strong desire to help others and to yes. make the world a better place, right? They're very altruistic, very caring people. However, these feelings of altruism are exploited by our institutions that claim to serve the public good, but in practice serve to uphold an oppressive social order. And that puts us in a conflict, it's in a class conflict. It's like we have to wear these two hats. Under one hat, we provide life-saving support to people. And on the other hat, we impose restrictions and controls that are experienced as oppressive and even traumatic, like forced confinement and forced drugging. And mm -hmm. even the support we are allowed to provide is strictly limited. Like, you know, I can prescribe drugs to alleviate suffering, but I can't prescribe what people really need, which is safe housing, decent jobs, higher wages, social and support, connection. And, yeah. and, and those, and those, um, those social benefits and so and when as professionals we accept these restrictions and we have to accept them to retain our professional status we help perpetuate the lie that there's not enough to go around which there is and that there are no social problems only individual ones and that we know what's best because people can't be trusted to make good decisions and we're not a profession that's really at the forefront of creating collectives that figure out how to thread our way through these things because we Maintain, we maintain our own lack of awareness. You know, yes, I, I mean, even even this concept of doctor-patient confidentiality, you know, which is is kind of like a bible for our profession. I mean, you you mm. this is this is you don't break doctor-patient confidentiality. But what do you think about what that means in a world of total surveillance, where everything we do is digitally recorded? This emphasis on doctor-patient confidentiality implies that suffering is shameful, not something you want anyone else to know about. And it sends the message that only you feel this way, only you have this problem, only you suffer this pain. And so we depoliticize suffering by framing it as an individual problem. Yes. And, and after listening to hundreds of patients confessing their shame that they are struggling, unlike everyone else who in their minds is doing just fine. I mean, that's mm -hmm. when I realized how individualizing diagnosis and treatment serves as a means of social control. Because when we treat patients in isolation from others, they're less likely to identify the social conditions that have caused their suffering, and they're less motivated to solve the problems collectively. And this aspect of social control is especially clear in psychiatry, but it also yes. permeates physical medicine. It does. It totally does. And it's interesting to me that there is a rule of confidentiality in part because the society would treat you as shameful and lesser if they found out you were getting help. That's part of the social condemnation that they have to watch out for. And so confidentiality is important because that would take away your chance for a decent job if they knew you needed psychological help. It's not considered a strength that you looked for it, but a weakness that you have it because everybody should be, quote, happy in this capitalist plunder and isolation. 
Yes, That's- yes. We are supposed to be happy and accepting and submissive and just trust the people in authority to take care of us, which, of course, they don't. Right. And in the United States, it's only now beginning to change. Starting in the 1930s, you weren't allowed in a film to show extreme poverty or misery or social and political activity. It was against the rules of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Everything had to be happy. <laughs> yes, don't worry, be happy. I think uh, That's right. Um, That's mm-hmm. right. That's wrong. It's think a tyranny. There's a couple of interesting things uh, there, which is that uh, there's almost a maybe a class difference because you certainly get the impression that if you have the money, it becomes a social signifier that you can afford to see a, a, therapist, a therapist on a regular basis. Right. And so rather than that being a shameful thing, it's like self-improvement. Yes. And letting everyone else know that you are improving yourself, right? And yeah. this is a sort of interesting twist on all of this stuff, because I think it's sort of returning to that positive thing. I think that there's a very interesting book called Psychopolitics, where he makes the case that the sort of more current form of of capitalism is very much more about a sort of soft seduction. And it's very much about uh, you feeling um, good things all the time or trying to uh, convince you of uh, its benefits. Um, through positivity rather than, you know, you should do this. Like, for example, he gives this case of you see a lot in the language, you can do this and can has no limit. Yes. Whereas, you know, a should is maybe a more authoritarian way of being in the world. Can is like you can do anything. And the implication Mm. is if you're not doing anything, uh, maybe you're limited and you're not the ideal neoliberal subject. It's really about promoting. Yeah. It's about promoting uh, personal bubbles in which you feel a sense of serenity, control, safety. Uh, and, of course, the more resources you have, the, the more secure your bubble is. But the thing is, is I think, as someone said to me the other day, that she's beginning to realize that there is no safe place. There is no island on which you can forget about what's happening in the world and live your happy life. That that's, that's being torn away. Uh, from people. Um, and it's infuriating. And there's a lot of shame because people think it's their fault that they're not able to keep it together. And right. this is why it's so important that the suffering be named as socially based and not a personal failing that, to break through that stigma that we have every right to be enraged and terrified and, fr- and, 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 and just that that movie um, don't look up I think really captured for many people that sense of of impending doom and powerlessness mm. and frustration that nobody is taking it seriously and even though the critics panned it it's been incredibly popular because it's yes. tapping into something very real for people I also think that it's only in a certain professional quote woke group that therapy is considered an asset. In the higher management, it's considered an impediment. You're not as trustworthy. And for the mass of working people who don't get expensive therapy, who get drugs and hospitalizations, it's a sign that you have failed. Because psychotherapy, in which you get to know yourself with a fellow traveler who listens and helps, is a luxury, at least in the United States, the most experienced therapists don't take insurance. They make it a real harassment. If you take insurance, you have to keep writing reports and justifying why you aren't using drugs and invading someone's privacy. Whereas if you have the money to see a private therapist who doesn't take insurance, you get a much higher level of service. So that too is class divided. And therefore, people who don't have money for a private therapist get drugged instead. Mm. Or CBT. Right. right. They get uh, here, people get put through a program of cognitive behavioral therapy. therapy. And when it doesn't work, which it rarely does, uh, then they um, fail. They have failed and they, and they are put on drugs. That's right. They, they think that the, the, the solution is not more therapy for people, it's for people to be in therapeutic situations like 
organizing a fight back, organizing yeah. to get more power in their lives, to get more of what they need in their lives. I, be, I strongly believe that people are very good problem solvers when they're given what they need to solve their problems. Right. And unfortunately, we, we the, uh, the professional class is in a position of gatekeeper, of not giving people what they need, of giving them only the minimum to keep them from marching down a city hall and chopping off the heads of the, of the city councillors. Or joining um, with others to, to be out in the street. There's, it's very therapeutic yeah. for people to be socially active rather than feel helpless and victimized. But that is not in the purview of our profession to suggest such things. Yes, and and the the uh, police repression, the terrible repression against anybody who dares to stand up and say I'm not okay with things, mm. uh, is is designed to marginalize, isolate, and stigmatize anybody who rebels. And I think this is becoming more obvious to more people. Yes, uh, which is why which is why the repression is becoming greater. Because yes, they can't, I think so. Yeah. And also our leadership says they're doing, they want to do something like Biden who wants, says he wants to get these votes through or he wants to um, get Kristen Sinema and, and Manchin to agree to voting rights. He says some things, but they're not sending thousands of people into the, these people's home states or out into the communities to get people into the streets. They're afraid of that. And both parties in the United States have the same corporate sponsors. So they absolutely don't want to connect people to get out there and fight for what they want. And so it isn't done from the top. Mm -hmm. And your, that would be um, the only way. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, in, in your book, Susan, Rebel Minds, uh, which I have been reading and uh, thoroughly enjoying, and I definitely recommend everyone try and get a copy of it because it is, I found your, you know, articles on your website, but your book in particular is just uh, very clearly written. It's very succinct. Like there's no sort of unnecessarily like academic flowery language. It's just like, you, you know, you really get to the point, you really paint the picture very simply. And the danger of the professional managerial class, there was one example in your book that really uh, was kind of terrifying. I mean, it's a slightly older um, uh, example. Is it Tuskegee? Is that how you say Tuskegee? Tuskegee. Right. Because I, I hadn't heard this. So I, I assume, Harriet, you have. But it would yes. be interesting if you don't mind recounting yes. sort of what, what it was because it, it's, yeah, horrible, basically. Well, it's it's not an aberration, unfortunately, um, because these this kind of experiment is uh, still going on. I mean, certainly in Canada, <clears throat> uh, even just recently, there was a, a lawsuit of Indigenous people who were who had agreed to do a study of one thing, but without their awareness or consent, something else was being studied that they weren't aware of. And, and there's a long history of using oppressed peoples to do experiments, to do so-called studies. The Tuskegee project wasn't actually a study. It was, it was a, a project of collusion in racist practice. And to, to explain what happened is that um, the, the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama was originally set up to train black teachers because they weren't, uh, because of segregation, uh, they weren't allowed to train in the, in the uh, schools that taught white teachers. So in 1932, the, the U.S. Public Health Service chose that institute to be the site of its of its project, which was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And it was exactly that. The study enrolled 600 black men, more than half of whom were infected with syphilis. And the men were falsely told that they'd be treated for bad blood, but they were never treated. They were monitored until they died. And the project was supposed to last six months, but it went on for 40 years. Even after penicillin was discovered to cure syphilis, the Tuskegee subjects were not offered this treatment or even advised to seek it elsewhere. And so for 25 more years, these infected men continued to be monitored as they sickened and died. So how, what, was, what is the purpose of such a project, right? And, and, and it's, 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 
you can see that it's 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 a very racist project in a racist state in a racist nation but why did so many black physicians nurses and medical students participate this is something i couldn't understand so it, it turns out like 127 black medical students rotated through this project and yet nobody blew the whistle even as late as 1969 Support wow. to continue the project was obtained from the National Medical Association, which is the largest organization of black physicians in the United States. Now, this project produced nothing of medical or scientific value. I believe its purpose was to teach professionals that they must serve the system as it is. And that means they must discriminate against people on the basis of class, race, and gender, or go along with that discrimination. And that's I mean, that's the only way I can explain why those black professionals participated in the project and why still even both black and white physicians deliver inferior medical care to non-white patients, right? And it's, it's a professional class. Even black cops also disproportionately target yes. non-white victims, right? This is, this is the price of being in the professional class. You uphold the system even when it attacks people like you. Because you don't identify with people like you. You identify with the police or with the physicians in that case. You are a professional. You are a cop. You are a doctor. Although it does take a toll. I had a client mm -hmm. who was a Hispanic Black person and who had a nervous breakdown from colluding with the torture of other Black people. Yes. Yes. Because and this somewhere is what I... he knew he was Black. This is a class conflict. This is what I call about the, the, the two hats that we wear. It is a class conflict and it forces people in the middle to choose which side they're on or to be torn apart inside. Yes. Yes. And lose their job because also he colluded mm -hmm. with the cops beating and torturing other black people because he knew he needed them if he was in a rough situation. They had to have his back. Yeah. And he could get shot in the back too. Yeah. Maybe this is a bit of a um a bootlicker idea, but I I sometimes think that the uh regardless of the PMC which I can get into in a minute, but I sometimes think with the capitalist class that they suffer from the same I tortured sort of ideas about success or failure. Uh they have maybe good problems opposed to bad problems, but they also sort of see themselves uh, in the same sort of tortured way, like not measuring up to what they're supposed to be. And I sort of wonder what the solution is to bring, if, if part of the solution of all of this is sort of political action and collective action, mm. then how do you bring the capitalists on board? Or how do I don't you, think that you oh, won't. I don't think that capitalists are torn in the same way as the middle class. The middle class is torn because it's in the middle. The capitalist class is not torn. It is in control. It is ruling. It they do have other problems like never feeling safe from competitors. Right. Always having to watch out for the person who wants to take their market share, you know, take their uh, money, um, steal right. steal their their uh you know, whatever they have, uh, they're constantly having to stay one step ahead of the competition. They're, they're insecure in that sense, but they don't have class conflict. Their conflict is, is uh, with each other, other capitalists, um, and with workers who want to, uh, to get a better deal, which would undermine their profits. They also have a sense that they are winning because they're getting more money. And that's considered winning in the United States. And they have also their therapists to serve them and so on. They have a lot of services. And which... they have the entire state machinery that services them mm -hmm. and makes sure that, that the education system produces low-wage workers for them. The medical system keeps their workers on the assembly line, you know, that, that – that social services will will uh, subsidize them giving low wages. You know, they, they all of this, the institutions of the state exist to serve the ruling class and to keep it in power. So, so they're doing pretty well, and 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 they uh, are not um, going to give that up uh, willingly. No. That's for sure. That that they're has winning. never never happened. They're the winners in the American system, and they have a lot of services. And so, of course, if there's a revolution, the working class will save them and allow them to be collective 
and live in a kinder world, but they're not suffering the way the people are who are, let's say, evicted. I live in New York City. As of the end of January, they will end the eviction moratorium. Hundreds of thousands of people will be homeless. They have a rental fund to help people, but it's very hard to apply to and very limited. So people by the thousands will be out in the streets. Those are real problems. So if you're anxious about it, it's obviously not just in your head. Neither is the climate crisis. And for capitalists may worry about fossil fuels and then join a little philanthropy group or get tax write-offs by giving to a group. But that really isn't the same as being on the street. And I think they... they I also believe in technological solutions. They believe that, you know, that there'll be a technological solution for climate change. There'll be a technological solution for the pandemic. And that's how they've always approached things, something that won't interfere with the basic functioning of society. And that's, that has been their whole approach. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And what they're afraid of is that people will catch on and organize in a powerful socialist union in the United States and Canada and elsewhere and connect with each other because that will be the undoing of their supremacy. Well, I don't think they're too worried because they've got some, uh, they've got, uh, an insurance policy in the form of the trade union bureaucracy, uh, which has served for a very long time to, um, to yes. curb the ability of workers on the job to actually um, um, improve their conditions in ways that that um, cut into corporate profits. And that's, that's why true. we see strikes being sold out over and over and over. Uh, and just recently, a whole bunch of them, the IATSE strike, um, uh, nurses strikes, people are being sent back to work without having won their gains or won, winning very minimal gains. So it just postpones the final reckoning. And and this is what, what Marx talked about, that capitalism creates its own grave diggers. And we're seeing this, is that it's creating a generation of young people who, who and, and older people who have increasingly nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. That's true. But on the other hand, more and more Americans are organizing outside of the AFL. And Sarah Nelson is running for president of the AFL. I don't know if she'll she'll win because that's an entrenched bureaucracy, but she is a radical. And they have a sense that they created this these organizations. And so that, you know, there were a bunch of teacher strikes across this country, especially in the South, places like West Virginia, they were not in the teachers' union. They just strike, struck in collectivity with each other. So that's happening as well. The well, union that movement is changing. You see the, the West Virginia teachers were able to organize a massive rank-and-file rebellion because they didn't have unions or their unions were very weak. But where unions are stronger, uh, it's both a benefit and it's also a handicap because they are very top-down bureaucratic service organizations. The AFL-CIO has been working with the U.S. State Department for, for decades. Yes, it to, has. To, to put down all, you know, it's, it's an institution of the capitalist state. It doesn't matter if Sarah gets to be head of it any more than it matters that a black man got to be president. The system doesn't change because you change the personnel who run it. That's true. But on the other hand, if she points that out, it has a very powerful impact. And reaches out to the the unions that are starting all over the place for support, then it's a shakeup in that organization, which has basically been a tool of government since the 1950s when Philip Murray of the AFL-CIO cooperated with the House on American Activities Committee to throw all the socialists, communists, leftists, and unionists that were had a spark of leftism and vision out of the unions, and they died. They were 35% of the population then. They're 9% of the population now. Big difference, the working population. 
And I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the top union bureaucrats start talking left and start, you know, responding in that way because that's what they always do in situations of social crisis. And it's not to actually lead people towards an alternative; it's to hold them in the system to tell people that there can be an alternative within the system. That's true. That's what the Republican. That's what the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are doing right now. Although more and more people are looking beyond that. And well, it's hard to look. Yeah, it's hard to look beyond it when there isn't anything beyond it to see, uh, because true. we don't really have a socialist movement. And what calls is, and what professes to be socialist is is very, I think, quite managerial in a sense of yes. of saying to people, "You put us in power, and we'll make a good society for you," instead of saying, With you, "You need to." be the ones in power. The people who do the work need to be the ones making the decision. We can help you get there, but it's up to you to do that. But that's where places like Cooperation Humboldt in California, Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi are working to create an economic cooperative model and change that throughout the society. There are all these things that are up for grabs now in the United States that weren't 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Circling back to something you said towards the beginning about uh, many, many young people not feeling that there's any hope for the future, do you, do you, Susan, see any uh, hope, any sort of solutions that work for you, like the the cooperation, uh, the co-op model for work purposes and, and stuff like that seem like good things? Do you have anything that uh, sort of lights you up, as it were? Well, I, I don't think co-op models are the way forward because they have existed since the beginning of capitalism. People, even before, people have created model societies and that's that's fine and it works for those people. Um, it's not something that can be instituted uh, in society as a whole. Uh, you're not going to have an, a cooperative U.S. military. You're not going to have a cooperative... Um, uh, fossil fuel industry, you know, you, there's only the only way forward, really, you know, when you have a global economy that is totally integrated, is for the people who work in the chain of production around the world to begin to be organizing for themselves in the workplace with the aim of taking over those workplaces and running them without Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all the layers of managers, but to make decisions themselves about how many people should be working, um, what should be the compensation, what should be they be making, who should get it, how it should be done. These are the, this is the only way that people are going to have work that is meaningful and safe and that they can work in ways that protect the environment, protect the communities in which they're situated. And that's, that has to, we're talking about a global socialist revolution that has to take place all over the world. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that's possible because we are globally integrated economically with communications, um, it's certainly the infrastructure is there. Capitalism has created that infrastructure for us to use. Uh, and we do use it now, but only to enrich the capitalist class. We need to be using it to solve the problems that are facing us in terms of deprivation and disease, um, stopping war, uh, taking down all those national boundaries so that we can have a cooperative world where everyone is protected and everyone gets their needs met. I believe that that's possible. I think it's the only way forward. It's the only way we're going to survive. It is the challenge of our species. If we don't meet that challenge, we will become extinct. That's the choice. Yeah, I I think there's a book called How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. And towards the end of the book, he talks about um, that you can do certain things that might not sort of immediately end capitalism, but it drives a wedge into it that opens up a space for other things to turn up. And I think that that's possibly where, you know, universal basic income um, could start to do that. I think, the, I think whilst you're right about the historical nature of co-ops that they've been around for a while, I do think that they offer, if you're in one or you know about them, because a lot of people, you know, in the UK, I've spoken to people who have set up a business or stuff like that. A lot of people just don't even know know it sort of really exists as an option, as a structure. And I think it at least offers some 
sort of different way of thinking. And, and to some degree, that's why I'm sort of, you know, was talking about the sort of bootlicker idea of like, can you convert the capitalist? Because I think that they're stuck in a particular way of thinking and seeing the world. And that maybe there is, you know, it, we had a guest months ago, and Dr. Ansloos, who uh, is First Nations guy, and he, um, in his book, um, The Medicine something or other, he was talking about this quite a sort of profound bit where he talks about the idea of having to eventually help the people that came and invaded their land. Like they're sick, those people, and they actually need help as well. And so that's why really I think about what do you do, <laughs> hypothetically, what do you do with this capitalist class? Because they're not, they're not going to go down without a fight and or they're still going to remain... Uh, they're still going to be around. That impulse, whatever it is, could still be around. So how do you how do you address it? How do you deal with it? Because to my mind, they're very disturbed, and we we live in a in a culture that is dominated by very disturbed people setting the rules of the game. So how do we address that? Well, I, I don't I, I don't think the problem is what the capitalists think. I think the problem is that the, is the power that they wield that they in insist on wielding exclusively. And mm. that's the problem, is, is their power uh, and our powerlessness. And the two are dialectically related. And once you take away their power, their right, their ability to exploit other people for profit, then they just become other human beings like any other. But to get back to what you said about the universal basic income, I think that's a trap. Because what it does basically is say that it's okay for industries not to pay people a living wage. What we can do is we can have governments subsidize people to um, have a decent uh, income. And so industries can just pay even less. And oh, by the way, if we're giving people this money, maybe we don't need to also provide them with services because they can use their money to buy those services. So I think it's not a solution. Um, if any, it's it, it's a um, it is a trap. But what we we need is in the immediate. We need to have higher wages. We need benefits. Everyone. We need su su financial support through this pandemic for all workers, um, and and uh, and that should be coming out of their profits. It shouldn't be coming from taxing workers to support workers uh, to allow industry to pay less. Mm. You see, see, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's a nice idea in the abstract, but in reality, it would have tremendous repercussions, which would not be in the interests of, of the majority of people. Yeah, you'd need uh, the, the extension of that, which is universal basic services, right? Which is basically that everything on the ground is covered. You have a roof over your head, you can get some food, you can have healthcare, you can have some education, and you need that as a sort of basic sort of foundation for everything i think the idea is that it you start to open up the possibility of things could be arranged a different way i think that's the sort of most optimistic version of of ubi or the consequences it could have but i see i totally see a point that the problem is not how someone thinks it's how much power they have and it's also not a question of of money what people needing money it's people needing power to make choices about where society is going, what are our priorities, where do we put our resources, what do we do, what do we not do. It's having the power to make those decisions that, that will allow us to enrich our lives, not just to buy us off with money so that we continue to live in the same alienated, polluted, destructive society. I, I've realized we've sort of got towards the end of the hour. I don't know um, if you had to urgently go or whether there were any more questions or if there was anything you wanted to wrap up with or plug or anything like that. I think we covered most of the things that we said we wanted to cover. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah, Rebel Minds is a great book. <laughs> it's well worth, it's well <laughs> worth really like buying. It? Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really, really great. It's sort of... Um, uh, you know, I had a friend who read the um, 12 Rules for Life, the Jordan Peterson thing, and I was sort of fe feeling like, well, this is the antidote for that. Like, <laughs> um, this is this is a, a much more accurate picture of what's happening uh, in the world rather than the sort of self 
monitoring you should be doing about how you behave and how you clean your room and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that certainly my my training as a physician has really, and my experience of working as a physician over 50 years has given me an insight that I wouldn't have had otherwise because you you listen to people's stories you know, over and over hundreds of people from different walks of life. And, and, and because I was working in Ontario, covered by government insurance, mo- almost all my clients were working class. So I really got a, a much broader sense than just from my own life of what, of how people live in this society, what they think and how they respond and interpret what's going on. And, and so patterns come out of those kinds of experiences, patterns that uh, can be extrapolated to the larger society. And, and so I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity to learn that from, from my patients and from their stories. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it definitely comes through. It's, um, and I, and I think it's the same for you, Harriet, right? Like the the people that you've spoken to um, during your sort of um, years in, in doing psychotherapy and stuff, it must be the same stuff often comes up again and again, right? This ha- this has happened a couple of times with um, Zencaster, but it also happens with Zoom where <laughs> it will drop a call. But I think we I think we've essentially got everything. I think um, so. That yes. That was great. Um I'm yeah, thank you very much for sort of taking the time and well, thank um, you for inviting me to do this. Yes, well I should say it was uh we have a um Patreon page and people use the Discord piece of software. It's like a chat software. And um various people uh definitely recommended you um as a guest because they, you know, really big fans of um all your writing. And uh, so in some ways, we, we have the community of people that follow the podcast to thank for it as well. Oh, good to know. Well, I'm, I'm available anytime. This is my job. This is what I do. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.